Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How's everyone doing tonight? Happy New Year. We haven't seen you guys since last year. It's been, it's been the whole month. I missed you. So uh, I'm excited about our readers tonight. I'm going to just like forgo the mic. I don't think we need it tonight. Um, so I'm excited. We got, we got Mike Cole and uh, Joseph Helm, Helmreich reading for us tonight. Uh, Joe has some books for sale in the back. Um, he has The Return. Word Bookstore is by the door. Wave Word. Yay. And um, Word Bookstore has been selling books for us for a long time, so we like to support them. They're an independent bookstore. I hope you'll do that. And uh, Mike has some books of his own that he brought that um, I'll let him describe it, but basically he's going to give them away as long as you promise to donate to either the ACLU, uh, Trans Lifeline, Planned Parenthood, any any uh, charity that you think will stand opposed to the current administration. All right. So, so before we get to our, our first reader tonight, just a couple of brief announcements. Um, so this is the Fantastic Fiction at KGB series. It's been going since the late 90s. Uh, this is almost my 10th year in March. It will be, I'll be 10 years doing this. Ellen's been doing it for, what, uh, 15 or maybe more? A, a little bit longer, but um, so it's been going for a long time. And there's never a cover charge. You walk in, you can, you can hear a reading and leave, and you never have to pay anything. So uh, what keeps the series going is, is the bar. So by supporting the bar, you support the series. So. Uh, even if you're not a, an alcoholic drinker, drink a, a soft drink, get a soda, support the bar, tip your bartenders, keep the bar alive, drink more, you keep us alive, so please do that. Um, next month, February 21st, Cassandra Caw and Petternell Van Arsdale. March 21st, Chandler Clang-Smith and Kelly Robeson. Chandler's here. Yeah. April 18th, Livia Llewellyn and John Paget. May 16th, Tina Connolly and Carolyn M. Joachim. How do you pronounce her last name? Joachim. Joachim. Thank you. They were both students of mine. Yeah, and they're both amazing. I'm not sure. Joachim. Joachim? I'm not actually sure. Okay, we'll ask. We'll find out. We'll let you know. uh, June 20th, Lawrence Connolly and Mary Robinette Cole. July 18th, Angus McIntyre and our favorite guest, TBA. And, uh, yeah. So, um... We got a great year lined August, up. Who do we have for August? We I have Michael Wehunt and Jeffrey Ford. Oh, yes. In September 19th, we have Keith Johnson and Patrick McGraw. Spelled as McGrath, but it's McGraw. In October 17th, we have Lawrence M. Schoen and Chris Pratt. So, yeah, so we hope you'll join us for that. Um, so, any other announcements? I think that's it. Okay. Yes, we're happy you're, you're joining us on this wintry mix evening. Uh, 
Our first reader is Joseph Helmreich. Joseph has contributed writing to Newsweek, New York Daily News, and Tor.com. And he's the author of the recent SF thriller, The Return, available for sale on the back, by St. Martin's Press, that came out in March, about a physicist who gets abducted by an alien ship on live TV. When not writing, Joe is a ventriloquist, illustrator, voiceover actor. I need to ask you about that. And member of alternative folk duo Honeybrick. He lives in New York City and works in film distribution. Here's Joseph Helmreich. Thank you very much, Matt and Ellen. Um, so, oh, sure. So I'll... Okay. Like this? This is good? <coughs> um, so, all right, so I might jump around a little bit. This is chapter one from The Return. If the conspiracy theorists are right and it never happened, then the day it didn't happen began innocently enough. The night before had yielded little morning news, and in fact, it had been a slow news week in general. A conservative mayor somewhere in Indiana had accidentally outed himself through a risque text message sent to the wrong aide. Several dozen people had been buried in an earthquake in La Vigna, Chile, a city few people in the United States could name, let alone empathize with. An up-and-coming pitcher for the Dodgers had been caught cheating on his wife, whom he turned out to be estranged from anyway. In short, water coolers across the country were, if anything, quieter than usual that afternoon. The calm before the storm. Still, almost any story would have been preferable to the one Bill Allenby had found himself saddled with that Tuesday, a lunar eclipse taking, that would be taking place from around 8.35 to 9.35 p.m. Roy Hansen, his ineffectual producer, had explained that it had been several hundred years since an eclipse had occurred on the occasion of a winter solstice, making this what experts like to term a rare celestial event. To Allenby's mind, that hardly made it worth dragging a whole crew up to Bernasconi Hills, which was expected to offer the best view of the, view of the sky in the Southern California area. And what exactly was he supposed to talk to Andrew Leland about? And where the hell was Leland anyway? Celestial events were not what Allenby had gotten into journalism for, and Hansen knew that. But several months earlier, a segment in which he had badly mispronounced the name of German philosopher Immanuel Kant had gone viral, and he was still paying the price. Though no one ever said so explicitly, until that embarrassing flood was fully lived down, high-profile trips to dangerous war zones and coveted interviews with world leaders would have to wait. For now, someone like Dr. Andrew Leland was probably a good catch. And not even the Leland of the late 90s either, who'd been hailed as the heir apparent to Stephen Hawking, but the watered-down, Hollywoodized Leland of today, a notorious self-promoter, whose name was more likely to be found in the pages of, inter pages of Entertainment Weekly than Scientific American. So now we're going to skip a little bit forward. Uh, so Allenby, the newscaster, he's interviewing Leland about this eclipse, and Leland is telling him about you know, all the science about it, and I would tell you now, but I have to save, you know, leave out some of the most exciting stuff, so you, know, you have a reason to get the book. Um, anyway, several moments of more scientific elucidation followed until... As the clock struck 9.37, by the way, this is all being filmed um, by a special camera, you know, as, as the interview is going on. Several moments of more scientific elucidation followed until, as the clock struck 9.37, the final bit of shadow lifted off the moon, leaving it once again whole and near to its familiar gray-white color. Wow, so that's it, Alan B.S., staring up at the moon. 
Yep, that's the whole show, Leland replied. And I sure hope you invite me back for the next one in 2094. Actually, in a little more space, there's a section that, although it doesn't relate directly, while normally Allenby might have been annoyed by Leland's sudden stab at self-promotion, he was at this moment distracted by something in the sky. Dr. Leland, he interrupted, his eyes on the moon. Sorry, but that sort of green speck on the moon where the shadow had just been, what's that? And it is here, at this question, that most versions of Bill Allenby's second and much more famous viral video begin. Leland looked up, squinted. The green speck that Allenby had pointed out appeared to be moving. The physicist watched a little longer, then shook his head. No, that's not on the moon, much closer. Maybe an airplane. But it wasn't an airplane. Lloyd Bruno, a cameraman with the show for over eight years, had little understanding of the fancy piece of machinery he was operating that night. Because of union regulations, the naval officers had been barred from operating the Astro HDR-8K themselves, and Lloyd had done his best to learn how to use the camera on the fly. Later, he would tell people that, that he had first thought the green dot that seemed to be getting larger and larger in the background was some kind of trick of the camera, a play of light, maybe a lens flare. In interviews for years to come, he would describe how Bill Allenby and the crew had fled from the spot as quickly as their legs could carry them, while Dr. Leland had just stood there, frozen as though in shock, staring up and out at the oncoming light. He would describe how he himself, 48 years old, with a wife and two kids, had ultimately decided to run, how he had grabbed the hand of Maureen Cruz, a panicked young makeup artist, and how they had rushed down a trail of cragged rock and dirt, not looking back while most others around them did the same. Bruno would be correct to say that Bill Allenby initially fled, but unlike Bruno, Allenby didn't actually leave the scene, but rather, as he would later detail at lectures and fundraisers and countless media award ceremonies, he, along with several of the naval officers and some brave members of his crew, crouched behind a production tent and did his best to watch from there. It is hard to know what Allenby or these other eyewitness accounts would have amounted to had Lloyd Bruno not left the astral camera running. As it stands, their testimony serves mainly to verify the authenticity of the images that were captured that, that night by the camera and witnessed by the public. The image of Leland standing still, facing the expansive view and staring up at the stars. The image of the strange and brightly lit green structure moving over the mountains in the distance and toward the cliffside, toward Leland with breathtaking speed of Leland being lifted up into the air by some unseen force and over the edge of the cliff, surrounded on all sides by a haze of green coruscating light. Finally, the last bit of footage captured by the astral camera and watched by 1.6 million residents of Los Angeles that night and over 150 million people in the next two weeks and billions more over the next several years, the image of Dr. Andrew Leland, washed-up celebrity physicist, rising higher and higher into the night sky. So now I'm going to skip chapter two, but chapter two basically takes place six years later, and we're following this 24-year-old kid at Columbia, Sean Ferris, who sort of has this underground adventure where he goes to visit the cyclotron um, that's buried under Columbia University where they, that was used for the Manhattan Project, and then he comes back home after getting chased by a security guard, and he finds on a physics message board where people talk a lot about this incident that happened six years earlier with Leland, he finds someone has sent him a message, and it's just an address, 123 Bayberry Drive, Emmington, Minnesota. Um, and now chapter three. 
When Sean Ferris was in high school, he wanted to be an archaeologist. Like the rest of the world, that changed after Andrew Leland. Sean could still remember the strange, exhilarating feeling huddled with fellow students around his English teacher's laptop as they watched the video for the first time. It was the feeling of endless possibility, and it was a feeling that was shared simultaneously by billions across the globe. Of course, there was an, in, in dissent in some circles in the beginning, allegations of a massive government hoax. But for the first time anyone could remember, it was the skeptics who sounded like lunatics and who were being laughed off the talk shows. Even popular debunker websites like Mythkill and Decoder could find no obvious flaws with the footage, no evidence of CGI or composite imagery, or that the video had not actually been broadcast live. Besides, the event had been witnessed at the scene by multiple and unrelated individuals, not to mention the several hundred people from surrounding areas who had reported a strange object in the night sky, and the dozens of cell phone videos that emerged in the following days, most taken by teenagers from Fontana and Rialto, which corroborated the footage from the Astro HDR8K. Yes, the crazies had far-fetched explanations for all of this, but for everyone else, the verdict was in. Meanwhile, the world went on, but it was a different place. Changes in the scientific community were among the most palpable, palpable as one of, the, one of its biggest questions were now seemingly answered, or at the very least modified from a question of if to one of who or what. Closely related to this, many first world governments immediately shifted their priorities. For instance, both the U.S. and British governments infused billions in capital into scientific research institutes that had scarcely a clue as what to do with so much money. Defense spending also skyrocketed around the world, as many analysts had predicted it would. Pop culture was, of course, transformed as well. Among the more obvious changes was a sudden influx of alien invasion films, notwithstanding outcries from some that the topic was now tasteless. Actually, the effect on pop culture echoed in many ways the era that had coincided with the first manned space flights, a period that had produced such television series as Doctor Who and Star Trek in films like 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, you know, and it goes on, you know, to discuss a little bit more of the changes, you know, that, that were affected by this event. Um, and then um, when he had a role, enrolled at Brown, Sean Ferris initially wanted to study astronomy. Later on, though, on the insistence of one of his professors, he switched to physics during his junior year. He was hard at work on an experiment in one of the university's newly renovated labs when his lab partner, Carl, burst into the room one day, looking ghostly white and out of breath. What's going on? Sean asked, looking up from an electroscope. You haven't heard? Heard what? Carl took a second to take in some air. Leland! He's back! At first, the news reports were tentative. A thin, bearded American had been picked up wandering in the southern portion of the Sonoran Desert, dazed and dehydrated. While several Mexican officials had noticed a striking resemblance to Andrew Leland, nothing could be certain until the man was properly identified. After he was brought back to the States and the correct tests were administered, his identity was confirmed via a live press conference by Los Angeles County Sheriff Randy Phillips. Exactly six years, seven months, and 22 days from the date of his disappearance, Andrew Leland had returned from the sky. The 24 hours news cycles went into overdrive. TV screens the world over were flooded with images of the emaciated-looking Leland, his long beard scraggly and unkempt, his eyes eerily vacant. However, if people had been expecting answers, they were in for a rude awakening. In a move that shocked and outraged the world, 
Leland refused to grant even a single interview request. More alarming, several media outlets reported that he was not cooperating with government agencies or scientists either. Instead, insisting that he had been living in Mexico for the past six years, retired from scientific research, and working as a farmhand, and had no idea what all the fuss was about. When he finally agreed to meet with his old colleague, Dr. Kazuo Murata, the latter, after spending nearly two hours with Leland, told the press that it seemed to him that Leland genuinely had no recollection of the event that had made him world famous. Leland's ex-wife, Nancy Scott, who met with him briefly to discuss some financial matters, concurred. These claims, however, did little to quell the rising anger, and there were even calls to have Leland imprisoned for treason against the human race, as several pundits and politicians put it. But at the end of the day, there was no one who could force Leland to talk, and eventually, some three months after his reemergence, he disappeared once again, not into the sky this time, but into the deep woods of the Blue Ridge Mountains, or the dark hills of West Virginia, or the swampy marshlands of Florida's Everglades, depending on who your sources were. But if Andrew Leland thought becoming an old-fashioned hermit would make people forget about him, he couldn't have been more wrong. Not since J.D. Salinger had picked up and moved to Cornish, New Hampshire, had any recluse inspired so much worldwide fascination. All across the world, Andrew Leland societies sprang up, formal groups devoted to the study of the man and the mystery. There were even one or two cults which built elaborate mythologies around Leland and worshipped him as a kind of religious figure. And of course, there were the endless alleged sightings, many of them reported early by Amber Q on Schrodinger's Rat and feasted upon by the likes of Sean Ferris, whose fascination with Leland had grown over the course of four years in college into a full-blown obsession. It was in response to one of Amber Q's posts that, that Sean, already at Columbia, had responded one night, up to here with this torture already, stop trolling and just tell us where the hell he is. Sean had, of course, meant it entirely as a joke. He had posted it on the board and not given a second thought. Now, a month and a half later, she had apparently complied with his request. He was utterly consumed by Amber Q's message. Could she possibly be telling the truth, he asked himself? If she really did have access to Andrew Leland's address, why would she ever provide it to a random stranger online? That part didn't add up. At the same time, she'd also been posting ostensibly secretive information for years. Also, what motive would she have to lie? He couldn't think of any, but the whole thing seemed ridiculously far-fetched just the same. Still, whether the address was authentic or not, it was all he had right now, and more than he'd ever had before. The last class of the day couldn't end soon enough. When he finally got out, Sean rushed back to his apartment, switched on his computer, opened up his word processor, and stared at the blank screen. The challenge that lay before him was enormous. He was going to try and enter into direct correspondence with a man who clearly wanted nothing to do with anyone. Even more problematic, the questions Sean so desperately wanted answered concerned a topic that this man claimed to know absolutely nothing about, an event that he insisted never took place. Sean cannot be deterred. He would have to be creative, he decided. He would have to think entirely out of the box. He would have to lie through his teeth. After several moments of deep thought, Sean got to work and typed out the letter, the following letter. Dear Dr. Leland, my name is Sean Ferris, and I am a William Godfrey Fellow in Columbia University's physics program. I'm writing to you today because, though I understand the chances for a response are slim, I feel that I have no other choice. 
Certain information has recently been entrusted to me, and while said information has little bearing on me, it affects you greatly. In fact, it is little exaggeration to say that you must be made aware of it at once. I understand that you may very well be telling the truth when you state that you have no recollection of the fantastical event that reportedly took place in Bernasconi Hills, California, and that, it is, that it, it is certainly possible that all the time you were believed to be missing, you were actually living on a farm in Mexico. However, there is also a chance you have chosen to feign ignorance about what happened to you for, for reasons only you know. Either way, it is imperative that we meet and that I share with you the information I have. After all this time, you must finally know the truth. I will be traveling to Rochester, Minnesota in two weeks to visit my ailing uncle. Please let me know whether you will have time to meet for an hour or so. I promise you that afterward I will not bother you again. Furthermore, if you do not have time to meet, but can only talk by phone, please call me at 636-555-0113. Alternatively, you can email me at sferris.columbia.edu. I look forward to hearing from you. Best regards, Sean Ferris. Um, by the way, the, the phone number, you have to be careful what numbers, phone numbers you put in books because you don't want people to call them. So that's actually Mr. Burns's phone number from The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> Sean, mailed, Sean mailed off the letter the next day. When two weeks went by and he hadn't received any response, he began to get antsy. After six weeks had gone by, his impatience had reached its limit. Figur figuring he had nothing to lose, he wrote another letter. This time, he abandoned his earlier tact and left out the part about having special information for Leland, supposing Leland may have seen through it the first time around and been turned off. In the new letter, Sean instead opted for honesty and explained just how much he felt Leland owed it to civilization at large to share what he had experienced and owed it to people like Sean in particular. He mailed this out again, this out, and again, his letter was met with no reply. Some four weeks later, Sean mailed another one. Two weeks after that, he mailed another. It would be a full 10 months and 14 letters later that Sean would finally receive some form of response. We'll have to find out what the response was by buying the book back there. And Joe will sign them for you, so please do that while we take a break. We'll take a break for about 10 minutes, have a drink, enjoy yourself, and uh, we'll be back soon. Thank you. Hi there, we're back. We're back for the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. So um, as Matt told you, I'm Ellen Datlow, and I'm the co-host. And our next reader, we're really excited to have someone who's actually a New Yorker. Actually, Joe, are you a New Yorker? Oh, yes, yes. oh sorry, I didn't realize that. <laughs> but I... And I, Mike not, wasn't a New Yorker until a few years ago. I remember the first time I met you, you were someplace else. Anyway, um, please welcome the next reader. Mike Cole is the author of the military fantasy Shadow Ops series and its prequel trilogy, the, Reawa the Reawakening series, both from Ace Rock. His Sacred Throne series is forthcoming from Tor.com in February. His first nonfiction military history book, will be out from Osprey in the fall. Mike appeared on CBS's hit TV show, Hunted, as part of a team of elite investigators tracking fugitives across the southeastern United States. Um, he's going to tell you what the deal, he already did, but you're going to tell him again yeah, about the book. He's giving away these books as long as you promise on your blood <laughs> that, you, that you donate to a worthy cause. 
He will. He'll come. Oh, we will. We will. Um, anyway, please welcome Mike Cole. Thank you very much. Let me get rid of that lamp there. Is it possible to take it off or is it taped on? Okay, that'll work. Sorry. So I have my uh, iPad here. Yeah, so um, uh, I, whatever your politics may be, uh, just speaking personally, I view that my whole life has been in government service and in crisis service and in armed service. And I won't lie to you, given the current administration, I kind of feel like I've been taken for a ride for my entire life. Um, and I don't know what I can do about that. I certainly can't pick up a gun and oppose it, which is what I've done my whole life when I face problems. What I can do is, uh, it feels lame, but it's something. Uh, I, uh, I guess, bartended at Coop, for those of you who came out to that, that raised money for BACLU and Trans Lifeline and Planned Parenthood. So um, it would mean a lot to me. I certainly don't want to take these home if you would take a copy of those books, uh, you know, take a copy, and for each one of you that does uh, on the honor system, please go home and donate. Um, it doesn't have to be, those are my preferred charities because I think they've done, uh, at least given me the most comfort, but uh, if there's one that you know, so long as it stands opposed, um, diametrically opposed to the current administration, um, you'd be doing me a service and I would really appreciate it. So thanks for that. Um, a little, um, so a little less reading and a little more talking by me because I love to hear myself talk. Um, thanks for the mic. I'm probably so loud I can be heard the next block over without it. Bring it down. Um, uh, and I'll keep track of time here. So this is a really significant book that I'm going to be reading to you from for me. It's called The Armored Saint, and it's my first dark slash medieval fantasy. Um, I've sort of made my name doing military fantasy. For those of you who knew me when I came into the field, I didn't look like this. I was still on duty uh, as the commanding officer of the United States Coast Guard Station in New York. So if you ever rode the Staten Island Ferry, there's gunboats port and starboard on the beam that are escorting you. Those are my guys. And um, uh, I got this reputation for military authenticity. And I would go to interviews, and I would be excited to talk about writing because the military was a lifestyle, yes, but it was, you know, my job. And uh, people say, thanks for your service. And what I always really wanted to say was, you know, they, they pay me. You know, this is a job. Um, I get it, right? But um, you might as well say thanks for your service to a teacher. You might as well thanks for your service to a librarian. Thanks for your service to a sanitation worker, right? It's the same thing. Um, there are jobs where you make a lot less money than you could otherwise, and sometimes they come with health risks uh, and uh, that, that otherwise you would avoid if you worked in a bank or something. Um, this isn't to say that I denigrate military service at all. I'm incredibly proud of it. I miss it like hell. Although, thank God I'm not in the military now, having to answer Trump as my commander-in-chief. Um, but people would say in these interviews to me, God, Mike, you know, your work is so authentic. That's the strength. It's authentic. And when you get up in the military morning and you have a military breakfast and you take a military shower and you go for military, what's your military day like? And, you know, you start thinking, there's more there, right? Um, like, I get that. Try to think about how that would feel. Some of you are passionate about your jobs. Um, you know, Alan has made her whole life, if I can call you out, Alan, in editing and publishing. There's a heck of a lot more to Alan Datlow than her literary career. Um, <laughs> and I think that, I think I can speak for Alan, uh, forgive me, uh, if, if I said it would be kind of exhausting, if that's all anybody ever wanted to talk to you about. Um, and I started to get a kind of insecurity. M is the success I've enjoyed as a writer because I am writing authentic military at the time with the exception of maybe Brad Torgerson, who 
frankly, I don't like very much. Um, I was the only serving military author um, at the time, I believe. And I, don't quote me on that because there may have been someone else in uniform. Um, and I started to think, wow, man, um, do people like me because I'm authentic? Or do people like me because I'm a good writer? And so I developed this need to do something else. Um, and it became a burning need. Um, and uh, I had a lot of false starts. And Armored Saint took me about two to three years to get to a point where I was able to sell it. But when I did sell it, um, and I'm so glad I sold it to Tor.com, because Tor.com is a publisher that, for those of you who know, came on the scene very, very recently. And they've experimented with lengths of fiction. And they've also experimented with types of fiction. Um, and I always pick out Dan Polanski's The Builders um, as a great example of what Tor.com is doing. Sean McGuire's Beneath the Sugar Sky has just come out. Brooke Bolander's, um, I, I know the cover now. Of course, I'm drawing a blank because I'm nervous, Irene. I'm sorry? Only Harmless Great Thing. But Tor.com has, publishing is, big publishing especially, is a pretty conservative industry, um, as even when we think about science fiction and fantasy. So I was really, really excited to find a home for this. It's a reinvention of myself, right? And here I am with a label that's kind of reinventing publishing and really pushing the boundaries of it. So it felt like a real kismet uh, fate thing for me. Um, so whether or not you like what I'm about to read you, I do want you to know that um, this means a lot to me. And whether this book does great or doesn't do great, it, for me, it was me proving to myself that I am a writer with a capital W. And I can do more than action scenes and military. Um, and uh, hopefully that comes across. And because of that, I'm going to read you a slightly spoilery section. I'm deliberately avoiding action. Because I'm known for these combat scenes and these action scenes. In the, well, here I'm flattering myself. I think I'm known for these combat scenes and these action scenes with a very, very modern military focus. Um, so I'm deliberately steering clear of that, OK? So let me give you a little bit of background. And then um, I guess I'll go for like 10 minutes or something. Uh, in this world, there is a, an emperor who is a, considered a divine emperor. And he fought the devils and pushed them back into hell and drew a veil between our world and hell. Wizards can reach into hell beyond that veil to channel magic. But if they're not careful, a portal grows in their eye and the devils come through. And they breach that barrier. And that is so deadly that a religious order called the Order uh, has grown up. And its sole job is to stamp out wizardry and prevent that risk from being materialized. And they are not nice about it. Um, if you are suspected of wizardry, they kill you. They kill your family. They kill everyone in your village. They burn everything. Think of it like a, they consider it like a plague. No two stones are left on top of each other. And the protagonist of the story is a, is a girl named Elwaz. Um, and what I'm about to read to you is a scene where the characters here are Elwaz and a family friend, this guy Clodio. Clodio is a ranger. He comes and he goes. He's a little funny. Nobody quite knows what's up with him. And in a very dark ages traditional, traditionalist society, he's viewed with a little suspicion. But everybody loves him. Um, and he's kind of a, you know, like a, a wandering tinkerer. He sells things. Um, Elwaz uh, has just spent the night with her best friend, Bessina. And Bessina is about to be married. She's betrothed to be married. And Elwaz is in love with Bessina. And Elwaz says, uh, Bessina says, hey, I'm about to get married. I've never kissed a boy. We should practice with each other. So they practice. 
but Elwaz means it, and Vecina doesn't, and it goes south. And Elwaz, in utter mortification, flees into the woods, tears in her eyes, and here's where we begin. Elwaz lost track of how long and how far she'd run. The forest was a tangle of rough branches reaching out from the darker shapes of moss-covered trunks. The ground was a treacherous enemy. She couldn't count how many times she'd fallen, risen, gone on again. She only knew that she had to keep running, that if she stopped, she'd be forced to face what she'd just done. So long as she kept her mind busy with navigating through the rocks, roots, and branches, she wouldn't have the time to think about it. The forest grew thicker, shutting out the moon and stars, and the darkness closed in around her like a physical thing, the smoke of a close and greasy fire. She inhaled it. The air is heavy in the tinkers as, as in the tinker's workshop, but cold now and vile, stinking of the world taking back the dead into itself, rotting tree trunks and the carpet of dead leaves beneath her feet going slowly to mud. Her body now launched its next betrayal. Her lungs began to burn, her breath coming in whooping gasps. Her legs went weak and refused to go on. She tried to drive them forward a few more steps, succeeded only in sinking to her knees. And then the reckoning was upon her. Her mind viciously recalled all that had happened, the warmth shooting through her body, the delicious drowning sensation, the giddy sense of floating on air, Bessina pulling away, her eyes going hard, her hands coming up. The storm of memory broke and the tears came, overwhelming her. She pitched forward onto her hands. She gulped air, shrieked out her sorrow, heedless of whether the order could hear, howling and stretching and finally forming into words, I'm sorry. She heaved, collapsed on her side, her eyes finally adjusted enough to make out the tree trunks nearest to her. They were giant things, larger than a man could circle with his arms. The moss clung to one in great clumps, giving the bark the appearance of a stern old man. I'm sorry, she sobbed again, but the old man's face in the tree had no forgiveness for her. The wind sighed in the branches. The ground was wet and cold against her side. It didn't care about her. Even Twitch was gone. Twitch is a pet mouse she received as a gift from this family friend. She could not bear the shame. She would close her eyes and will the breath out of her body. She was too weak to move in any way, and only pain awaited her any place she would move to. Her mother and father both had warned her about wandering off into the woods on her own. The traveling Kipti would come and steal her away. There could be brigands or bears, or worse. The order was somewhere out there, probably gathered about their campfires, raising their heads at the sound of her shouted apology. It didn't matter. Whoever came for her could have her. She stared at the old man in the tree's mossy beard. The Greek thickness seemed to ripple. Rustling leaves told her that whatever danger her parents had predicted had found her. At first, she thought it might be the wind. But then she heard the pause and intake of breath as whoever it was spotted her, followed by the deliberate sound of footsteps. She was frightened, but the fear washed into a pool of relief that it would soon be over. She closed her eyes. I'm sorry, she whispered again, one last time. I know you are, child, a voice answered, soft and gentle, but there's nothing for you to be sorry for. Hard hands slid under her knees and neck, cradling her head gently, holding her into a chest covered in rough wool that smelled like old leather and leaf mold. 
she felt the top of a hatchet head bump against her. It's all right, the voice said again, sighing like the wind, and she recognized it at last. She turned into the narrow chest and sobbed anew. It's all right, Clodio said. I've got you. I've got you. The ranger carried her in his arms like a baby. He hummed as he walked, a nonsense tune of deep murmurs that only just sounded like words. She imagined herself in the arms of the old man in the tree, only now his face was kind and his moss beard soft and sweet-smelling. Pillowing her head in his hard wooden arms, cradled her gently. It was a silly, childish thought, but it fit the sound of Clodio's humming, and for a moment the horror of what she'd done was kept at bay, unable to break through the bubble of safety Clodio had woven about her. He said he had her. He said she had nothing to be sorry for. It was the last shred of a life worth living, and she clung to it. The ground finally gave up its treachery and went over to a steady, gradual rise, the trees thinning around them until the st starlight pushed through the treetops. One tree stood out above the rest, hugely thick around the base, rising straight until its trunk ended in a jagged, uneven line in the air, twice as high as a tall man. As they drew closer, Elwaz made out a light flickering from inside and realized that it was the stone ruin of the roundhouse. Clodio had left a fire burning when he came for her. Out here in the wild with the order about, that was a bold move. How did you find me, she asked. The humming stopped. So you have your wits about you, huh? He said. Down you go, then. He stopped and gently set her on her feet. She briefly clung to his neck, not wanting to leave the safety of his arms. But life couldn't be avoided forever. Here with Clodio, she felt like she could face it. She tested her legs, found they would hold. Clodio stood back from her, setting his knuckles on his hips. You don't look too banged up, I suppose, for a girl running for her life through the wild wood on her own. You aren't answering me, she said. How did you find me? He laughed louder than she thought was wise when anything could be lurking in the dark. I had help from a certain mouse. He held out his palm. Twitch stood on his hind legs, nose straining towards Elwaz. He let out a small squeak at the sight of her. She took him in her hand, bent her cheek to his soft fur. I lost him. He came running, whispered in my ear, told me you were in trouble. Of course, he wasn't entirely sure where you'd gone, but he does have a better sense of smell than I got me close enough to hear you when you decided that you had something to say to the entire wood. Stop it, you're making up stories. Clodio's face went serious. Wizardry. Twitch is my eyes and ears, Elwaz. I told you he would watch over you. I meant it. Elwaz's stomach turned over. That's not funny. Clodio shook his head, chuckling. You're not to be denied, are you? Oh, I should know better than to underestimate you, Elwaz. I'm sorry. Let's get some food in you and figure out what to do next. Elwaz heard a branch breaking out in the woods and looked over her shoulder. But the order is camped on the other side of the village and down the road besides, Clodio said. They'll not trouble us tonight. Come and eat. He started walking toward a darker patch in the gray surface of the ruined tower, and Elwaz assumed was a long-neglected door. The talk of wizardry had rattled her. She was so happy to have Twitch back in her pocket to feel his soft fur against her thumb, but she couldn't explain how Clodio had come by him. The woods were vast and dark, and which was so very small. I'm not hungry. Clodio stopped, but didn't look back. Well, sit by the fire, then. The night woods is no place for an unarmed girl to go a-walking, and as you say, the order's about. You certain they're not coming? I'm certain. We rangers have ways of not being found when we don't want to be, even with little girls in tow. 
The tinkers will be worried. They will. Even now they're ready to search for you. I'm sure. Daybreak is close at hand. Catch your breath, and I'll take you back. Elwaz knew he was right. Knew she had to return, but the thought of facing Basina after what had just happened made her stomach churn and her shoulders shake. Please, let me stay here. Elwaz, Clodio said. The tinkers will go mad with worry. How would you like them to turn an ankle hunting for you out in the dark? That's not what I want, Elwaz said, but the terror of facing Basina again consumed her, and she felt herself close to tears again. I'm just, I'm just not ready. Clodio paused, sighed. All right, you can stay until you've caught your breath, and then we have to take you back. He started toward the roundhouse again, and suddenly the darkness seemed very close around her, alive with crunching twigs and the wind breathing between the trees. She found herself hurrying after him. I can't go back. Not ever. No, really now, he said. You killed someone, I take it. No, of course not, she said. Ah, you stole them. The mayor's gold candlesticks, his favorite horse. What's wrong with you? You know I wouldn't steal. I do, he said as they reached the tower entrance. But you're saying that you can't go back, even though the order is out here, and you were crying about being sorry, so I keep thinking that whatever it is has you running through the woods at night must be a terrible thing indeed. But Elwaz could hear his <coughs> smile, and part of her thought, he knew exactly what she'd done already. That he didn't seem angry or disappointed helped to master her grief. It is terrible, she said softly, as they passed through the ivy-covered rotten timbers that held up the tower stone and framed what had once been a grand door. A filthy leather bedroll was laid out in one corner of the ruin at the base of a stone staircase that wound upward for two flights before ending in midair, a jumble of blocks below showing where it had collapsed who know how many years ago. The tower stretched above it, until it ended in a jagged and roofless circle open to the sky. A small fire was built in the ruins of the staircase, burning merrily under a little iron pit. The ruin was empty, overgrown, and dirty, and felt as safe as a fortress. Elwaz looked up at Clodio to find him gazing down at her, dark eyes reflecting the dancing flames, the ever-present smile lifting the corner of his mouth. It is terrible, she said again. He nodded. I believe you. It's just that I'm having a hard time picturing what it is that hell the Elwaz I know could have done that was so bad. You've killed no one, stolen nothing. Ah! He snapped his fingers. You desecrated the shrine of the emperor. You pulled the statue down and you pissed on it. She gasped in horror at the blasphemy, though her heart delighted in the plain talk. No, that's disgusting. But you said you've done something terrible. No murder, no theft, no blasphemy. You're too young for a ravishing so. He went to her side as the tears doubled her over again, walked her to a block of broken stone, smooth with time and sat her there. Elwaz, you ravished no one. I know this. I, I, she managed between hiccuping sobs, struggling to speak. Her fists were balled in her lap and she could feel twitch as he nosed out of her pocket and licked at her knuckle. Clodio knelt before her, his dark eyes finding hers, holding them. She tried to look away, found she could not, her tears drying as she lifted her head. Helwaz, he said, kneeling before her, hands on her knees. Helwaz, listen to me. Will you listen? The words were a question, but they sounded like a command. She nodded. Clodio rocked back onto his backside, folding his legs in front of him, resting his elbows on his knees. The firelight danced along his face, shadowing his eyes and making him look very tired. Your father will have told you about my payment for the heartfruit rind, he sighed. She nodded, and he sighed again. What did he tell you? Again, Elwaz felt as if he already knew the answer and was asking the question for her rather than for him. Mother, Elwaz said, she said that you love too much, 
so much that it hurts you. She said it was as if your heart were too big. He smiled sadly. She's right. I did love too hot. And it has hurt me. And my heart has brought me grief. But this is the thing, Helwaz, and you must remember it. If nothing else in our friendship stays with you, I ask that you only remember this one thing. Can you do that? Elwaz nodded, leaning forward. What? That love is worth it. It is worth any hardship. It is worth illness. It is worth injury. It is worth isolation. It is even worth death. For love with, life without love is only a shadow of life. He gestured at the fire beneath the pot, his hand fading to gray in the wavering shadows. It is like my hand now, looking the same, but drained of all color. It is a living death. What did you love, she asked. Not what, silly girl, who? Only other people are worthy of the kind of love I am talking about. Well, the order will tell you that you should love the emperor more than anyone else, but it's a bunch of claptrap and they know it. Who was it? What was she like, she asked. He looked up at her now, his face a mask of sadness. And for a moment, she could see the young man Clodio had been, the hopeful man, ready to risk anything. She could imagine his own traitor body dragging him on. He shook his head. No, it is a person you love, not a name, not a she or a he. A person in all their shining glory. There is a thing in us, Elwaz, a seed. It makes us who we are. It is our core. That is the thing that we love. It alone exists. It alone is holy. It has no name. It has no home. It is neither male nor female. It is greater than that. Do you understand? Knows, the thought sent chills through her. And perhaps, perhaps it was the same for him. I loved a person now. I love this person with all of myself. It was a thing I have never known before and will never know again, and I would have done anything for it. What happened? She, the person didn't love you back? The person did. His voice was suddenly so low she had to strain to hear it. But love is a great power. As with wizardry, such a power cannot be permitted to flourish outside the emperor's grip. There are those who wish to possess love utterly, to own it not just for themselves but for all. Do you know how they possess it, Elwaz? She didn't even nod this time, staring at him open-mouthed and silent. They own it by defining it, Clodio said. They say, love is this, and love is that. And when others say it is something else, they imprison them or flog them. Sometimes they kill them. My love was a thing outside the circle they had drawn. It made them angry. A mob of them gathered. They chased us. We escaped, only barely. And after that, the person I loved grew afraid and sent me away and will not answer me any longer. A tear fell from one eye, sparkling in the firelight before vanishing into his hand. Then it wasn't love, the words bubbled up as the grief had escaping her mouth before she could control them. Clodio looked up at her, eyes angry, but the words seemed to have a life of their own, refusing to be bitten back. If a person loves you as they say, then they would never send you away no matter what the world would do to them, she said. Then what are you doing running through the woods, child, Clodio asked. Thanks. Thank you. So that's coming out in a couple of weeks, right? In a few weeks? Uh, yeah, February 22nd. OK, so look for that. And it's called? The Armored Saint. The Armored Saint. So thank you for coming. Um, do you have anything to say? Hang out. Take looks, please.
take books. He doesn't want to take books. Also, I have some goodies there to eat. Um, and we'll see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.